politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties under assault. This is Daniel Horowitz here at CR Podcast on Wednesday, March 17th. And yes, this was the day that George Washington got the British to evacuate Boston after he erected the guns, those heavy cannons on Dorchester Heights through the amazing work of Henry Knox, who eventually became his first Secretary of War. He had this innovative way of getting the guns down from Vermont on sleds. My kids are obsessed with that story, by the way. We've been doing that, uh, the whole Revolutionary War series, in homeschooling this week. And it was actually March 17th that that happened. And I'm thinking, what is our way? What is our way out against superior forces that are so much stronger than us? How can we break free? When I look at these stories of... Out of New York City, this is from Gateway Pundit. Judge removes six-year-old from mother because she didn't wear a mask while dropping her off at school outdoors. Dr. Micheline Epstein herself, a family physician, when she dropped her kid off at Birch Wathen Lennox School on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. She, um, daughter was already inside the building. And she was wearing a mask, mind you. And the school nurse runs out. And school security attempted to force Dr. Epstein to wear a mask on a public street to drop her off. And this dirtbag judge went and stole her life and took away her custody. I guess it was from a divorced family. And this is where we are in the country now. A country we do not recognize. A country we could have never envisioned. The judge, his name is Matthew F. Cooper. May his name rot in hell forever. How has this happened? So yesterday we took a little detour route to discuss another civilization crisis. The criminals ripping people apart. Today Shannon Joy sends me an article about two black teens that had massive criminal records that set a white homeless person on fire. Nothing happened. And I only bring up race because they're the ones saying the whites are attacking blacks when the opposite is true. Um, And when in fact, it's because of race that juveniles are not being locked up. So today we're going to do a proper commemoration of yesterday's one-year anniversary of 15 days to flatten the curve, 15 years to flatten our country, although they have flattened it in one year. And we're going to have a special guest on today, Dr. Peter McCullough, to discuss the insane censorship of early stage and even prophylactic treatment of COVID that has been kept from the public for months, even censored by medical boards, Doctors are fearful to even prescribe. What are we going to do? Now, one thing we can do is gather together in person. You know, we're trying to form our Constitution Action Network, our Liberty Strike Force teams in each state. This is really where it has to be, bottom-up, local, and state. So one of the things we can do is you guys could join me On April 25th and May 30th. So there's two separate dates we're having for Constitution Coach training the best defensive handgun training in the country at Front Sight Nevada. Along with Rick Green and Patriot Academy. At night, we're going to study the Constitution together. Great classes during the day. Full training on how to properly shoot. Clear malfunctions. It is so much fun. You meet fellow patriots. It's the best vacation around. Um, Nobody who went on our February trip felt 
that I oversold the trip. They felt I undersold it. It was like, wow, I've never had this much fun. I've never learned how to use a gun better than this. So if you go to constitutioncoach.com, you could see it's a $1,000 course for $100 for the two-day. If you want to do the four-day beginning, same dates, by the way, it's $150. Again, 90% off if you do it through constitutioncoach.com. Um, look, you got to wear a mask on the planes. There's nothing I can do about that if you live too far away to drive like I do. But there, we are free from all COVID tyranny at front sight. It's truly terrific. So hope to see you guys there, constitutioncoach.com. And that, that way we could start appointing state team leaders and you know really doing this. And by the way, I am working on that. Um, we have a couple of teams I'm working on. Uh, Missouri, East Texas, West Texas. We're having two teams so far there in Texas, North Dakota. I'm looking at Ohio and West Virginia and Idaho as well. Um, so we are getting that started and we need it badly. We need it badly. Because where are we? You look a year later and we are just as much in the dark as a year ago. People aren't fighting back enough. We now know that everything that should have been done against this virus with early treatment was not only not done, but it was censored from the public and doctors were punished for trying to treat patients. And all the things that absolutely did not work one iota, did not work, were tried and experimented upon the population, resulting in the worst mental and physical health crisis in this country, the masking of children. It was truly, truly unbelievable what we're seeing with the masking of children. There's an article out from the UK Telegraph titled, um, Face Masks in Class Are Causing Physical Harm to Children. This is from the UK. They report... Breathing difficulties, headaches, dizziness, children around the country are suffering from a range of side effects, including lightheadedness, fatigue, and, and facial rashes, according to a symptom tracker launched by the parent campaign group Us For Them. Look, they're doing more in Europe than here to fight this. The tracker, which was launched at the end of the last week, has so far gathered over 50 reports of youngsters suffering shocking physical reactions to face masks. Um... They said that teachers are putting children under extreme pressure to wear masks, adding staff make people feel guilty if they ask to take a mask break. This is a concentration camp. This is satanic. Masks don't work, but either way, kids do not spread it. Kids don't get it worse or even up to the point that they get typical pathogens every year. This is unbelievable. We wonder how could they do this to us? Not just not a shred of evidence, but all the evidence showing the opposite is true. Again and again, we let this go on. You know, this guy on Twitter, I don't know who he is. His name is Eric. His Twitter handle is um, I am the actual ET. I don't know, whatever funny name there. But he put out an inch, a link to an interesting paper prophetic it was written by none other than johns hopkins in partnership with the world health organization september 2019 and they noted during an emergency it should be expected that implementation of some npis non-pharmaceutical interventions such as travel restrictions and quarantine might be pursued for social or political purposes by political leaders rather than pursued because of public health evidence it's amazing in the context of high-impact respiratory pathogen, quarantine may be the least likely NPI to be effective in controlling the spread due to high transmissibility. To implement effective quarantine measures, it would need to be possible to accurately evaluate an individual's exposure, which would be difficult to do for a respiratory pathogen because of the ease of widespread transmission from infected individuals. The value of taking any specific NPI intervention in a particularly pandemic setting is not outweighed by the potential harm. It is important to communicate to political leaders the absence of evidence surrounding many NPI interventions and the adverse consequences that may follow them. Beyond this, in the public setting, there is very little available information that studies 
the effectiveness of masks outside of health facilities. And now, actually, we have the only study ever done from Denmark, I'm sorry, from the Netherlands, no, Denmark, showing it didn't work. And really, more importantly, the ultimate experiment of Los Angeles that did this for an entire six months before they barely had any spread. And then it just came. And when it came, it spread as quickly and as widespread to half the city's or county's 10 million people as quick as anywhere in the country, despite everything they did. Zero effect, only harm. We have destroyed our civilization with six trillion in extra debt from COVID. And that's just the spending. God knows the tens of trillions we're gonna lose from the economy. The small businesses lost. The dependency created. The monopolies created. The mental health destroyed. The physical health destroyed. Can you imagine that? All for a lie. But it's worse than that. It would be one thing if COVID were absolutely nothing. Not just exaggerated, but nothing. Then at least it's just the collateral damage. But here, not only did they do what they shouldn't do, and and we suffer all the side effects, they didn't do what they could have done and could still do, but people to this day don't know how to treat it. And that's what we're going to talk about with our special guest. But speaking of censorship, today's guest is sponsored by ExpressVPN. We know that Trump supporters are being canceled, censored, crushed by big tech. They have an unholy alliance whereby they track, censor, and spy on us all together. I don't know why I didn't find this sooner, but you can make your entire online activity anonymous through ExpressVPN. Everything you search for, watch, or click online is, is tracked by big tech companies. You know, when you see, you buy a shirt online and all of a sudden everywhere you go, there's shirts pop up. But when I switch on ExpressVPN, computer, phone, laptop, it basically puts a mask on your computer. This type of mask actually works. ExpressVPN app also encrypts my network data to protect my sensitive information. From being compromised, they offer up to five devices on a single subscription. So folks, stop handing over your data to big tech companies and their far-left enablers in government. Defend your rights with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash conservative. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash conservative to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash conservative right now to learn more about masking your identity from big tech. Now, yesterday, I was watching a video of the Texas legislature. This is from a couple days ago, where the Senate Health and Human Services Committee held a hearing with two terrific doctors about early treatments and what we're missing, what we're not talking about. And it stabbed me in the heart because I remember it was literally a year ago. I can't believe we're up on a full year where we were talking about passing a $2 trillion bill, shutting everyone down, and then passing this bill to fund it, to grease the skids for it, all predicated on a premise of pandemic response that we've never done. And I said to myself, well, wait a minute. You know, you want to panic for a week or so, okay. But then while you're panicking and locking down, let's hold hearings in Congress, in the legislatures, about how does this virus works? You know, how do we respond? What works? What doesn't work? Before we do something this draconian, shouldn't we actually have hearings and bring in experts from both sides? And it's funny that a year later, barely any states are doing this. I'm trying to get people to testify before certain legislatures about mass, about MPIs, about ivermectin, hydroxy, you know, early therapeutics. And it's shocking at how little interest there is from most legislative bodies I'm seeing. They want to cut around the edges a little bit of the emergency powers, but they're not dealing with the premise 
of is the entire direction of this pandemic response just false? One of the analogies that comes to mind as I was listening to Dr. McCullough's testimony um, in Texas was, you know, someone comes to a doctor with an early stage uh, tumor, breast cancer, let's say something like that that's eminently treatable early on. And the doctor says, you know, I think your toe is infected. And they amputate the person's toe. So not only do you have the amputation and the fallout from that that should have never happened, but then you're like, well, wait a minute, what happened to the cancer? Like, could you could you treat that? And, you know, I told you guys this got personal to me when my brother's father-in-law, who was 74 years old, didn't really have health issues, but, you know, he's in that that danger zone. And he stood home for an entire year, unlike my side of the family where they were with the grandkids, followed the science that kids don't spread. Um, he, he stood home. He's in New York City, low vitamin D levels to begin with. So then he stood home a year, and certainly his levels plummeted. To my knowledge, he didn't take any prophylaxis, didn't understand anything about zinc or vitamin D or anything. And he was told, shut up, mask up, stay home, and you won't get it. Well, he got it. And indeed, when he got it, he got it bad. And he was just like a sitting duck. His doctor did nothing for him. And he had, he waited, it was at least a week, until he had trouble breathing. And then he comes to a hospital I won't mention in Brooklyn. And it's basically remdesivir. You know, by now they do have certain things that do work, but not the best cocktails that people have really researched. But just remdesivir, that's all they care about. And keep threatening him with a, a ventilator. And he basically went through four weeks of hell. Luckily, now he's finally off 100%, you know, oxygenation. He's on the less um, invasive oxygen. And he's he's on the mend, but it's going to take a very long time for him to recover. And I, I, I wonder to myself, how long is this going to go on? And, and how many more people are needlessly going through that, or worse, even dying, when this is really eminently treatable? So with us today is someone who actually knows a lot about that, none other than Dr. Peter McCullough himself. He is the Vice Chief of Internal Medicine, uh, Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. He's a clinical cardiologist, um, but he's also a well-published researcher, and he published a paper, um, I believe last August, in the American Journal of Medicine, talking about the, um, the pathophysiological basis and rationale for early outpatient treatment of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Dr. McCullough, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Well, look, I heard you in that testimony, and I said, look, I got to get you on the show. I got to learn from you. Um, okay, I'm not a doctor, as you could tell. I don't know anything about this. But a year ago, as I was watching Lombardi in New York City, I said to myself, okay, clearly this could get deadly, but it didn't look like people were spontaneously combusting. Um, it didn't look that to me like this was something that we haven't seen, the inflammatory response, the cytokine storm, the super infection, the severe pneumonia. We, we saw it a mile away, especially after a few weeks of this. We knew how it, the sequence of events of, of how the virus works. And I said to myself, we really don't have a way of treating this. So could you walk us through some of your theories um, on this, but maybe first, and take as much time as you need, talk about the pillars of, of uh, pandemic response in general and how therapeutics tie into it. Well, we knew early on, as you indicated, that it was a viral infection, and there were two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. I mean, I think everyone would agree to that. So there are four things that can be done to address it. Uh, the first is try to reduce the spread of infection, and we all agree uh, there were tremendous attempts to do that. The second most direct and most impactful is treat the problem. And so treating the problem early with the goal of reducing hospitalization and death. The third thing to do is if patients do get hospitalized, we hope that wouldn't happen very often, to treat patients in the hospital and try to reduce mortality. And then the fourth thing is uh, what we call herd immunity or to use vaccination uh, to try to close out the pandemic if, if indeed vaccines could be safe and effective. So we, the thing we really missed that you're pointing out is we completely missed the ball on early treatment. Uh, there were no 
government programs anywhere in the world that comprehensively tested multiple drugs to treat SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. We knew it was a deadly infection, so we knew single drugs weren't going to work. I mean, I think anybody uh, who's worked in medicine would understand that in AIDS, in hepatitis C, other serious viral infections, we always need multiple drugs. So there was a series of just low effort, uh, low intellectual capacity clinical trials that tested one drug uh, and then declared it, quote, didn't work. And there was a wave of of pessimism. Uh, at the same time, there was a massive investment in vaccine research. Uh, and, you know, going back, if we could have had uh, a comparable research and investment into early multidrug treatment for COVID-19, that would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. What happened was that doctors and private clinics began to innovate with nutraceuticals and available prescription medications, most of them generic, that basically addressed viral replication, the cytokine storm or the immune dysregulation that happens, and then microthrombosis. And it turns out actually the inflammation and thrombosis are probably bigger uh, features of the illness than the viral replication itself. Mm. And the community really uh, uh, had this hyper focus on viral replication. Everybody wanted to talk about hydroxychloroquine or or uh, ivermectin, or in Asia, wanted to talk about favipiravir, or in the inpatient setting, wanted to talk about remdesivir. Well, really, the action was, uh, it was certainly drugs to reduce viral replication to the extent we can use them, fine. Uh, but, but really focusing on these other areas, uh, cytokine storm and thrombosis, uh, putting that all together, what Dr. Vladimir Zlenko showed in New York City early on, he was the very first innovator, and now Brian Proctor here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area has demonstrated both studies congruent that this early multidrug approach in high-risk patients over age 50 with multiple medical problems can reduce the risk of hospitalization and death by 85%. Wow, 85%. And, you know, I, I remember just looking this up online because, you know, I got parents that are older, my my wife does, and she is a, a mother with, with conditions. So, I figured, hey, I, you know, let me let me find out what's going on. And this was months into the pandemic. I look online, and I'm like, this is the most studied thing in the history of humanity. Okay, you can no longer say this is novel. Um, we've obsessed about it. And to this day, if you're the average Joe in the street, a year later, you don't have a timeline, a cocktail, dosages. I mean, unless you're really into these small cliques of people, but your average person is not getting any information from the government of, hey, if you start seeing this, um, maybe here, here's what you should take or your doctor should prescribe. And to keep you out of the hospital, we were told that we could take away everyone's liberties under the guise of um, trying to alleviate the stress in hospitals, yet there's no forward-looking thinking. And then all I'm seeing is remdesivir, late use, which doesn't seem to have data behind it, so could you walk us through some of the steps that people should take or some of the things they should look for, maybe even prophylaxis, that, that have evidence-based research behind them? You know, I just wanted to comment on this, uh, what I call oblivion to early treatment. Uh, uh, Americans must wonder why month after month after month in every local and national TV program on COVID-19 why there is no update on early treatment. There's no information on what somebody should do when they get handed their test result. And in the Texas Senate, I testified to a patient journey. I know because I had it. My wife had it. When you get handed a test result for COVID-19, uh, there is no information. There's no treatment offered. There's no access to research or hotlines. And there's no follow-up. And this is a potentially fatal illness. My wife and I came home and we told ourselves, well, we potentially each have a fatal illness now. And there's absolutely nothing in terms of support from the medical community, from the government, from the media, a total oblivion. And to this day, Americans are furious. Every time a media doctor comes on or a government official comes on, and nowadays we just have one government doctor who comes on TV, there is zero mention on how to treat the problem. There's been a massive focus on contagion control, wearing masks and social distancing, and there has been wild enthusiasm for the vaccine. 
But the sick patient right in front of us right now, that, that's the biggest public health impact we can have is treat sick patients and avoid hospitalization and death. There is zero focus on it. And I think there's been basically chronic fear, uh, anxiety. I think some doctors are afraid of uh, catching the virus themselves. There's been a lack of compassion for patients like this. And there's been a complete and total failure of our stakeholders uh, in, the, uh, in the government. And I would include the NIH, CDC, the FDA, Infectious Disease, Infectious Disease Society of America. Uh, Ron Johnson got so frustrated with this on November 19th and December 8th, he held two hearings on early treatment. And of interest, they were completely blocked in the media, and they were completely blocked and censored on social media. So yep. there are powerful forces that really don't want any information to get to Americans on how to treat COVID-19 early and prevent hospitalization and death. This is really the biggest story a year later. Um, how, I, I'm, as you're talking, I'm looking at this right now on the NIH website, Therapeutic Management of Adults with COVID-19. They have not hospitalized, um, hospitalized but no oxygen, hospitalized requires oxygen, and then they go into, you know, ventilators and, you know, really bad stuff. And basically, not hospitalized, mild to moderate COVID. So we're not talking about, like, asymptomatic. You definitely have symptoms. And they basically say there are insufficient data to recommend either for or against any specific therapy. Um, the panel, and then they just say they recommend against the use of de dexamethasone. And then basically you go to the hospital and it's early treatment, remdesivir, late treatment, remdesivir with some dex dexamethasone thrown in. Um, remdesivir and dexamethasone, and then hospitalized and requires invasive mechanical ventilation, dexamethasone. Now, I've looked at Dr. Pierre Corey and his group, um, I'm forgetting the doctors affiliated with him, and I'm seeing they have prophylaxis, early, middle, late, they even have post-ICU management. And there's all sorts of drugs that seem really cheap, some I've heard of, some I haven't, I'm seeing research on melatonin. I'm seeing research on aspirin. I'm seeing, obviously, the zinc and, you know, the, the Zelenko protocol. And to me, I'm thinking, like, we're spending $2 trillion on God knows what. We're doing the rain dance. We're doing the moon dance. We're doing everything under the sun that's causing so much damage and really has shown, I mean, uh, this is an ADP article. AP article, virus tolls similar despite governor's contrasting actions. And, and we're seeing that with the data. But yet the one thing that we need with research of, of um, you know, what's it called? Uh, repurposed, cheap and easily available drugs. I need to know, we all need to know what stage, what dosage, what mix. And I don't know. <laughs> well, I, would... I don't know what to do. Well, you know, I saw this in April and May, and I put together a team of American and Italian doctors. Uh, we submitted our paper July 1st. It was published August uh, uh, 8th in the American Journal of Medicine. And at the time, there was 55,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature. Not a single paper uh, taught doctors how to treat COVID uh, in the pre-hospital phase. And that paper uh, that you indicated, the pathophysiologic basis and clinical rationale for early ambulatory treatment, uh, went viral. It still is the most frequently downloaded uh, paper in that entire journal for the entire year, and it gives the exact sequence of drugs and doses, the off-target antivirals, the uh, corticosteroids and immunomodulators, and antithrombotics to treat the problem. Now, I updated this in the December issue of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, and that includes now the EUA monoclonal antibodies by Lilly and Regeneron, and uh, uh, additional information, we have great uh, data now supporting ivermectin with the great work of Dr. Corey and Merrick, but we also have uh, data for colchicine, which is a repurposed gout drug that has a 50% reduction in COVID mortality. And so using this sequence multi-drug approach, we have a powerful uh, armamentarium to treat patients and avoid hospitalization mm -hmm. and death. And so these are breakthrough papers. The second paper was published when we had 100,000 uh, peer-reviewed literature, uh, papers in the peer-reviewed literature. Again, not a single paper put everything together. So that's been my role. And you know what? That picks up and fills a void that the NIH has left, the Infectious Disease Society of America, and WHO. None of them, as you indicate, actually tell doctors what to do when patients get sick with COVID-19 at home. 
Yep, it's probably one of the most remarkable things in human history that there has never been a virus that has dominated every aspect of our lives like this. And and to this day, um, people are in the dark, and it's just so tragic. Um, by the way, just just a one word on what you just said. Am I getting this right? Quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-T-I-N? Yeah, well, there's a nutraceutical bundle that's helpful. We recommend it for everybody with COVID-19. It is vitamin D, 5,000 units, vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams, and quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day. Now, none of these are curative, but they can be helpful. And we even advise them sure. for young people. For people over 50 with multiple medical problems, uh, I think the preferred way to go is with an antibody infusion uh, that we can order with a phone call. They're pre-purchased uh, by the U.S. government. And sadly, these antibodies are sitting on the shelf underutilized because the media mm-hmm. is blocking any information to patients on how to get these monoclonal antibodies. Clinics and hospitals are not uh, giving information on how to access them. Urgent cares never mentioned them. And the patients are left in the dark. And here we have high-tech EUA products that are left unused. Now, I don't use those alone. Uh, after that, we can use, um, in the United States, we can use hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, plus doxycycline or zithromycin. Doctors can tailor this. Day five for pulmonary symptoms, we can use oral steroids. Prednisone works fine. There's great data now to support inhaled budesonide. We can actually do that uh, through the entire course. Mm. And then importantly, colchicine. Colchicine, an old gout drug, 0.6 milligrams twice a day for three days, and then 0.6 milligrams a day thereafter. Patients with heart and lung disease, um, I end up using fairly strong blood thinners, including uh, low white heparin or novel anticoagulants for everybody. Aspirin, 325 milligrams a day is advised. It takes four to six drugs to take a patient who would have wound up in the hospital on the ventilator and keep mm. home and guide them through the illness so in the end, they have what looks called natural immunity. This is very important. Natural immunity is both complete and durable. Wow. Yeah, I want to get to the back end. There's the front end censorship and obfuscation, and then there's the back end after people have already gotten it by hook or by crook and some tragically in a much worse uh, a clinical way than they should have. Um, but you know the stuff you're mentioning – I think the problem a lot of people have is unless they have a very broad-minded, almost you know trenchant type of doctor, they don't either know about this or are too scared. Um, why? Here, here's my question: We have a gene therapy type of vaccine that's very novel. It is under emergency authorization use, but the government's treating that as if it's ironclad. Okay. But then when you have repurposed drugs that have been dispensed billions of times for other things and there were never any issues, doctors seem to to act as if they're like super experimental and they're scared of being censored. Who who is behind this push? So I, I understand, you know, I've been doing this for a year at the political media side. So if you say anything against lockdowns or masks, and certainly the vaccine, you question it, it's going to be censored. And we understand where that's coming from. But I look at a guy like Dr. Corey, and I don't mean to you know pick on him or, or anything, but I know he supports masks and he supports the vaccine, and that's fine. And yet still he's being censored for mentioning ivermectin. Who is behind that? Well, I guess that's the trillion-dollar question. Um, I can tell you this, though. You know, if you, if you were a primary care doctor and a patient had uh, some sinusitis symptoms, some wheezing, had a background history of asthma, it wouldn't be a big deal to prescribe azithromycin and some inhalers and prednisone. It, it's, it's not that far away from treating COVID-19. Now, we have to be on our A-game. We have to use some additional drugs, maybe as short as uh, five days, as long as 30 days. But I think what I found among doctors is the combination of both courage and skill are rare. And a lot Mm. of doctors feel more comfortable saying, you know what, I don't treat COVID. And my advice to patients is they should get an action plan with their doctors and ask them, if I get sick, are you going to be able to treat me? If they say no, say, listen, can you refer me to a doctor in the community who does? Now, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons keeps an entire database of treating doctors and centers in the United States. I testified in Texas that we have 35 treatment centers. 
Patients need to, need, to go, uh, need to know where to go for help. They just can't sit at home and wait until they're on their last gasp and then hit the panic button and go to the hospital. They contaminate everything on the way to the hospital. They contaminate their family, the taxi drivers, the Uber drivers, the EMS personnel. It's an infective mess. The best thing to do is treat at home so patients can get through the illness and get to the other side of natural immunity. And folks, you can find that at AAPS's COVID page. Um, terrific bunch of doctors. It's been an honor really to meet so many of them over the years. A terrific organization. Um, real quick, just one drug I want to bring up. I've seen some studies on bromexine. It's I know it's o- over the counter in Europe, but it's prescription in America. Do you have any data on that or any any uh, protocol on that? No, I don't. There have been there's been interest on uh, stomach acid drugs, other forms of anti-infectives, mouthwash, um, etc., even anti-anxiety drugs. Um, I, I'd encourage uh, the listeners to stay with the um, main line. With hydroxychloroquine, we have far more than uh, mm. 200 uh, studies. Hydroxychloroquine is a standard frontline drug in Italy and Greece and Turkey, all of Eastern Europe. India. Ivermectin, again, a standard frontline drug uh, just south of us in Central America. They handed out in treatment kits. It's a standard in Mexico City. Uh, it's a standard uh, in, many, in, pa- in uh, Pakistan, in Bangladesh, many countries in the world. We never use hydroxy or ivermectin or even favipiravir, which is a standard in Russia. We don't use those alone, but we use them in combination with the, with the other drugs. Um, and it's very important. Uh, patients do need corticosteroids. Uh, British have done uh, one of the most powerful studies with uh, inhaled budesonide, and that has a big role. We use that in asthma anyway. It's not a big deal. Adding in colchicine. And then I think the thing that many overlook is the important use of the blood thinners. When patients die of COVID-19, they die of blood clots. They have fatal mm. blood in the lungs. They have fatal strokes, fatal heart attacks. And some seniors need to go on blood thinner injections called Lovenox injections for as long as 30 days. And I think that's very good practice. Wow. I mean, again, this is all really solid information. And again, I understand, obviously, you're speaking alone, not on behalf of Baylor University. Um, but there are doctors out there that are trying to help. And and this really does supersede politics. I mean, this is something we should all champion, all be be proud of this research. What is your view on prophylaxis? Let's say you have someone who feels they're more vulnerable and they feel like they want to, you know, take something preemptively. Do you have any advice for that? Well, there's two uh, prophylactic approaches. One is with hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams twice a day, one day a week. uh, And that has about a 90% protection. Uh, The other approach is with ivermectin. It's typically 18 milligrams about once every five days. Uh, There's less supportive data for ivermectin than there are for hydroxychloroquine. Where prophylaxis works, keep in mind that's about the same protective effect of the of the vaccines. Now, I do recommend vaccines in my uh, patients, in my in my uh, high risk patients. I uh, recommend uh, that they go undergo COVID nineteen vaccination. Uh, however, my personal view is that the natural immunity is superior to that of the vaccine immunity. Well, th- that's what I was thinking of, and also. You know, a lot of the same forces that are very into the vaccine, but they're also very into mass and lockdown. So the two kind of work against each other now. So they're trying to warn about variants. And one of the things I was thinking of, aside from the fact that the research out there, to the extent that, you know, that that degree of efficacy is really true about the vaccine, it seems to be true of the variants, too. Um, I've written about a couple of those studies, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the type of cocktails and protocols and the mixture of drugs you're talking about, isn't it true that it's not just this version of COVID or even this virus necessarily, that they have the antiviral, anti-inflammatory qualities that should work against whatever mutation we're confronted with? Well, that's an important point. We have actually had variants in the United States or different strains from the onset of the pandemic. And it turns out that we can identify the entire virus intact in the GI tract. And Dr. Sabine Hazen in California has done this. And from the very onset of the pandemic, it's clear there's multiple different strains. So we know that the oral multidrug approach and uh, the monoclonal antibodies that are used in general together are generically 
uh, effective against all forms of variants and strains. Now, the vaccinations that are given, they only uh, are uh, providing immunity in a sense stimulated by production of the spike protein, but it's the same spike protein and the same code for the spike protein in the Pfizer, Moderna, and uh, J&J vaccines. So one of the concerns is that vaccine immunity is very monolithic, that each person vaccinated has the same immunity, one person after one person after one person. And if we vaccinate in the middle of a pandemic where there's a lot of prevalent cases, what do you think the virus is going to do? If the virus encounters 95 million people with the same immunity who are vaccinated, then the virus will probably find ways of getting around the immunity. And there are three well-described variants that scoot right past the vaccine immunity. Now, someone who has the natural immunity, they have not only immunity against the spike protein, they have immunity against nucleocapsid, other um, enzymatic features of the virus. They have innate immunity and cellular-based immunity. So the natural immunity kind of blows away vaccine immunity. And to my knowledge, there have been no credible cases of second infections with COVID-19. When I mean credible cases, I mean patients who end up on the ventilator twice that have both the nasal PCR, the antigen, and the full virus sequenced twice. It's never been described in the human literature. There's been about 100 cases where patients are variably PCR positive at one time or another, and they may have been sick one time or another, um, and, and the doctors uh, get confused and think it's the second case of COVID-19. I don't think a single one of those cases uh, holds any water. And I think the listeners should understand that when you have COVID-19, it's one and done. You have permanent, complete, and durable immunity, at least as far as we know right now. And so there's, there's no way to get it again. And when I testified in the Senate, I said, why are we testing COVID-recovered patients? Why did my wife and I have to go through nasal testing? Um, you know, why are we keeping COVID-recovered people out of the Super Bowl? We should have filled up the stadium with 80,000 COVID-recovered patients and cheered that America was back. Instead, we made this very meager offering to have 100 COVID-vaccinated healthcare workers attend the Super Bowl. That was the weakest, um, I think, poorly conceived uh, offering that we could have had. COVID-recovered patients ought to be given privileges. They are, they're the safest patients to be around. Uh, you shouldn't be concerned at all for COVID-recovered patients who are traveling and out in congregate settings, what have you. Sooner or later, we're going to have to come out of this and, and recognize what we're dealing with. COVID-recovered patients, to get COVID and recover is a blessing in disguise. And that's the reason why young people who get COVID-19 where it's a self-limited illness, under 50, no medical problems, almost everybody gets through to the other side. It's a blessing in disguise. Yes. It's a blessing to have complete and durable immunity. And it's shocking how they were locked down to begin with, and the kids is just unconscionable um, how, how light they get it, often asymptomatically. Um, these are really the two, in my mind, the two biggest lies that are so dangerous. The front end, that there's no way to treat it and just wait until you can't breathe, and then the back end, that I, I will tell you what you are saying is you're you're so confident about, and I you know certainly agree with it. But almost everyone I know doesn't seem to feel it. They're like still doing the rituals and the mask, and they're st scared. Um, I think the you know CDC put out something about ninety days, just simply because we were only 90, 90 days into the infection. So they're like, well, it's ninety days of immunity, and everyone thinks that it comes back against you. Have a a study from Harvard. Medical school in Boston University just came out that shows um, the the S specific memory B cells confer robustness against um, emerging SARS-CoV-2 variants, the UK and the South African variant. So you know it, the the natural immunity uh, seems to work. I know La Jolla had a recent study. They did a lot of work on T cells that the memory T cells um, work against all the variants, and it's just that information is not getting out. And what scares me is. It was kind of academic at the beginning because few people had it. But according to serology tests, 45% of Los Angeles have antibodies, which in my mind means that more than 45% had it with the you know in inherent immune system warding it off without producing antibodies. So, and by the way, isn't it interesting that LA got to such prevalence with everything they were doing, <laughs> the MPIs, but putting that aside... Doesn't that mean that half the city 
shouldn't have to worry. Well, it's hard in terms of the individual worry, but I testified at the U.S. Senate that Texas was at 80% of herd immunity. And the calculation goes like this. 15% hmm. of the population just can't get COVID. Now, some people say it's 30%. Some people say it's 15%. But, but 100% of people are not susceptible to getting it. That was a, that's a false notion. Must- could, 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 you, could you describe that a little bit? Because a lot of people have no- noticed that this virus is insanely transmissible on the one hand, but then you have cases of husbands and wives where one just literally doesn't get it. Yeah, sure. Well, that, that's where the observation came from. So we'll have three sick people in the household and one person is fine and they don't get it. And so what's unique about that person? Well, they may have cross-reactivity from other coronaviruses. They may have innate immunity confirmed through what's called interferons that make them resilient to the virus. So the estimate is 15% are just not susceptible to COVID. We have the proportion of patients who had COVID, for sure they can't get it. And then we have uh, suspected COVID and never got a test. And the CDC multiplier for that is six. So for those who had COVID, the CDS, CDC estimates there's six times that number that actually have had COVID but haven't gotten the test. And they estimate that from the serology studies and other case contact uh, studies. So the bottom line in Texas, if you add in, if you add up COVID, uh, COVID recovered, COVID suspected, not tested, and the uh, and, um, the not susceptible fraction, that's 80% of our population. Now, if that's true, that means the virus is on its way out. We're not going to have a huge surge because you just physically can't get that many cases. But the million-dollar uh, question is for each and every person who truly is immune. The antibodies are not rock solid. So antibodies uh, shoot up in patients with the infection and after the vaccine, but they rapidly trail off. You know, 20% of patients who have the infection don't have measurable antibodies at 90 days. Mm. Uh, The FDA has recently cleared, EUA cleared a T-cell test to indicate uh, whether or not there's T-cell immunity. And that that actually test works by testing rearranged DNA in your T-cells. So believe it or not, your T-cells rearrange DNA to express different cell surface receptors on the T cells to uh, combat the virus if it comes back. It's very interesting. Is that commercially that. available? It's commercially available. Uh, you can order it online. Uh, it's a bit pricey right now, about $200, sure. uh, but the process uh, uh, takes about a day or two, and then patients can go to LabCorp and get their blood drawn and see indeed wow. if they have this T cell immunity. It has about a 97% positive predictive value, meaning that if the test is positive, there's a 90%, 97% chance you had COVID. Now, it's not a guarantee of being immune, but it's a very useful test for people where the antibodies don't give them uh, the signal that, in fact, they've had it. So I think this test is going to be another useful tool because people are asking, really, do we have to vaccinate everybody? Remember in the clinical trials, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, pregnant women women of childbearing age, they were all excluded from the clinical trials. The clinical trials didn't go into the nursing homes, so very uh, elderly patients weren't vaccinated. So who was vaccinated? It was basically kind of well, uh, relatively middle-aged people. In the Johnson & Johnson clinical trials program, 60% of patients vaccinated had no medical problems whatsoever. So it tends to be very healthy people in the trials who got vaccinated, very concerned, a lot of doctors, healthcare workers. And the attack rate in the vaccine trials was less than 1% per month for both the vaccine and the placebo. So it's very important. <laughs> people have said, wait a minute, the vaccine's going to make the, the disease go away. I said, no, it's going to be a less than 1% public health impact. It's less than 1% attack rate per month. So the vaccine is not a game changer from a public health perspective. Could it help uh, help prevent COVID from coming back at a future date? Yeah, just like you know, we get a vaccine when we're young so we don't get measles or mumps later on. Could it have that role? Yes. Um, but people, I think, have really have overstated the effect of the vaccine. And of course, now there's uh, really alarming safety concerns about the vaccine when it's used off, in a sense, off the indicated population. Remember those populations that I mentioned, they were excluded for the clinical trials by the FDA and the sponsors for a reason. And now the FDA and CDC are recommending that we just turn around and vaccinate them, even though they weren't studied. So, so let me get this straight. If, if you have a person that is 70 years old with diabetes and a heart condition, 
So obviously they're very vulnerable to the virus. You're telling me that in terms of the vaccine, that cohort has not really been studied, right? Well, that um, cohort actually is the one I am recommending the vaccine for. Okay. And I think there are enough, if you piece together the clinical trials, enough pa- enough patients to show uh, and enough scientific rationale to show this a benefit. So that's actually the band that I am recommending for a vaccine. Again, these are my personal recommendations, which is kind of a more narrowly applied set than the um, government or media um, advertised uh, approach to vaccination. So people over age 50 to 75, medical problems, have high contact jobs. I think that's where the benefit outweighs the risk. Now, what about a young person who's perfectly healthy, somebody who's 25? I think there's no opportunity for benefit there and only an opportunity for harm, yeah. like a serious allergic reaction or, or worse. Uh, one of the things that's been stated is that the vaccine can reduce the young people's ability to pass it from person to person. I don't think that's been sufficiently shown. Most of uh, the transmission occurs from sick person to well person, and the Chinese have shown that in a study of over 11 million people. Another example where I think is really wildly off target is to vaccinate pregnant women. Now, they were specifically excluded from the clinical trials for a reason, and we never do that with new drugs or medical products, never. Uh, And so I think, again, I think that one's wildly uh, off base. And the area that's most concerning is with the frail seniors in nursing homes. Now, this, uh, these group, they just didn't access clinical trials. And immediately the, the rationale was they have the highest mortality rate of all, and we should protect them. Mm. And I understand that approach, uh, but it really has been a disaster in the uh, CDC vaccine adverse event uh, reporting system, uh, CDC VAERS. Uh, there are over 1,600 vaccine deaths in the United States. Estimates are that only about 10% are reported, so there could be as as much as 16,000 deaths, which is an astronomical number. Uh, The the narratives are in the CDC database. You can go online and read them. A typical narrative would be a frail senior is vaccinated in the morning, develops a high fever, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath in the evening time, and is found dead the next morning. And, And they cluster right up on day one, two, and three after the vaccine. Now, this last weekend, the CDC uh, announced on their website that CDC and FDA doctors had reviewed all 1,600 deaths reported and declared not a single death was related to the vaccine. So immediately there were calls from the academic community to say, wait a minute, we need external review. We need review by a panel of doctors who are not vaccine stakeholders. Remember, the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH, as well as the major media and the media doctors they can be viewed as vaccine stakeholders. They've kind of staked their viewpoints, if you will, on the vaccine. The NIH actually co-owns the patent for the Moderna vaccine. So the NIH is clearly conflicted in terms of being a vaccine stakeholder. So we need external doctors, I think, to review all of these deaths, uh, adjudicate them, figure out which ones were related to the vaccine, figure out which ones weren't. We would do this with any drug and then come up with a risk mitigation strategy. That is, how can we more safely apply the vaccine? Uh, one of the first steps was just to, is to not vaccinate patients who were not studied in the clinical trials yes. or where there's and, no and rationale. Then, and, then, For instance, and then Dr. McCullough also, if we're dealing with prioritization as well, why are we vaccinating people who already had the virus and and the government's treating them as if they're as if they never had it? Uh, you know, I, I did a whole article with Congressman Thomas Massey that he caught CDC um, telling people that there is absolutely no difference between having had the vaccine ver- ha- having had the virus versus versus not having had prior infection in terms of prioritization for the vaccine and they said that Pfizer's trial proved efficacy among those that have already had the vaccine and it simply wasn't true and they said they were going to uh correct it and they never really did well this is very important uh covid 19 recovered patients strictly excluded from the clinical trials program. It's in the protocols, it's in the manuscripts, it's in the FDA briefing documents, strictly excluded. Uh, about uh, There's a paper that just came out from the Ma- Manchester United Kingdom, where, by the way, mass vaccination without any type of um, uh, limitations is also being practiced elsewhere in the world. From uh, in, in the United Kingdom, 26% of patients receiving the COVID-19 vaccine, the mRNA vaccines, 
have already had COVID, and they have double or triple the rates of adverse safety events. So remember, if you've had COVID, there is no significant chance of getting COVID again. So getting the vaccine only offers an opportunity for harm and offers no opportunity for benefit. I think any common sense person can understand that. And I really uh, have to encourage our governmental agencies and our media doctors and others uh, to quickly recognize this. We have to stop it. The vaccines are at a premium. There are people who really need them. uh, And we shouldn't be vaccinating COVID recovered patients, in my view, under no circumstances. So let me just wrap this up and put it all together. And I really appreciate you for staying on for an extra segment. This was so enlightening. Um, just to come back to what we started with, you put it together and you have all these challenges. Obviously, a virus that's still percolating, mutating, lots of different uncertainties. You have a society that is now willing to do the most draconian things to avoid the virus. I mean, whether it's shutting down, whether it's wearing a mask to the point that you're going to have workers for 10 hours wearing them in, in hot conditions. You'll, you'll, you'll put it on two-year-olds. Um, that you'll put it on on autistic children. I mean, the stuff that we're willing to do under the guise of saying, hey, we we, we so badly want to protect ourselves from this virus. So let me ask you, Dr. McCullough, wouldn't it make sense, and starting with nursing home people, especially given the, the, the delicate balance there with the vaccine and what we're seeing, doesn't it make sense to give them some sort of prophylaxis Every day. I mean, if we're going to do such great, go through such great measures to protect ourselves, doesn't prophylaxis make sense? Well, nursing home patients have uh, clearly been the largest proportion of deaths. It's been clear from the case context studies that nursing home workers gave the virus to the residents. They didn't go out and, and get the virus and bring it into the nursing home. They were given the virus from the workers. So I think the workers undergoing vaccination because they're young enough and healthy enough to withstand the vaccine reactions. Seniors, if they're strong enough and healthy enough and are at risk, I think it's reasonable to undergo vaccination. I think a doctor should uh, make that judgment. Keep in mind for the AstraZeneca vaccine, now there are 14 countries in Europe that have suspended that vaccine Mm. put off the market because of these deaths as well as uh, blood clots or uh, uh, thrombosis. Um, prophylaxis has been attempted in nursing homes with a variety of medications. There is a paper in preprint by uh, Paul Alexander from Hamilton, Ontario. Every single one of those prophylaxis studies are positive, meaning that there is an approach to prevent COVID-19 and even treat it in nursing home patients to get them compassionately through the illness uh, and, and hopefully guide them to you know, having some more time with their relatives and more time uh, here on earth. And also, I mean, if you don't get it, then you don't spread it. So, I mean, if you do have prophylaxis, I'm just saying if everyone would would be as religiously into hydroxychloroquine and some of these other cocktails as they are into the MPIs and all the shutdowns and everything, it's it's not just that you'll have better outcomes, but wouldn't you have less spread? Because then on average, they either wouldn't get it or it'd be more asymptomatic. And, you know, as you mentioned, all the literature, despite the government's premise, the the literature seems to show that asymptomatic spread is pretty light. Well, the most interesting thing is after the two sets of U.S. uh, Senate hearings occurred and uh, after the huge messaging we had when the AAPS home treatment guide came out in the fall, in the third, fourth quarter of 2020, there was a massive surge of early ambulatory treatment. Uh, the hospitals did not overflow. In fact, they started clearing out late December, early January. This is long before anybody was fully vaccinated. And interestingly, new cases, hospitalized cases and deaths started to fall for the first time. So your contention that treating the problem reduces the contagion or the transmission of the virus is supported from those epidemiologic observations. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I, you know, I, I view every policy issue with common sense. And to me, if you, if you have proven antiviral, anti-inflammatory qualities in this stuff, well, if there's no viral repl- replication going on, then the viral loader will be reduced. And then over time, um, you know, I'm, I'm just saying to me, if you want to be a fascist and control people's lives, I would like have a camera in their house and make them take hydroxychloroquine. I mean, if that's what government is is up to, which unfortunately they are with the masks and everything, 
and, and, and you want to be at least evidence-based about your strong-arm tactics, it, it shocks me how we're not pushing this perhaps even for people that are, you know, may, maybe somewhat middle-aged, um, you know, that, that could be borderline vulnerable to the virus. Um, your your research needs to get out there more, and I really thank you for your presentation. I've learned more in the last 45 minutes than I have all year. Um, this has just been terrific, and, and please let's stay in touch. Um, any, any parting words of advice before we uh, close this up? No, I think it was a terrific interview, and I hope in each and every person understands that this is uh, uh, really the calamity of our lifetimes. We've lost loved ones. We've lost friends and family members. Uh, we've suffered greatly in fear and isolation. The way out of this is supporting one another, promoting early ambulatory treatment and prophylaxis, uh, promoting, uh, I think, appropriate vaccination, taking prudent measures not to spread the virus, and getting back on with life. Uh, COVID-19 is going to be with us for a long time. It's like any other medical problem. It's like the flu, pneumonia, uh, staphylococcal infections. Doctors can treat it. Patients need to recognize it. Uh, the points of diagnosis uh, are where information needs to be given. You know, after our Texas Senate testimony, within 48 hours, legislation was introduced into the Senate floor that mandated patients who are handed the diagnosis of COVID-19 be given information on how to get treatment. And, and mm. I think that's a, a big step in the right direction. We've had one year of a deplorable standard of care, not treating this illness, a complete block to the public on early treatment. Uh, the media and the government agencies have been complicit in this block of any information on early treatment. And at the same time, they've been wildly over-promotional of the vaccine. Those two stances that have been taken by all the stakeholders, the government agencies, the White House task force, the media, the media doctors, the social media, that stance, I think historians will examine very carefully over the course of years. And they'll ask the question, how many lives were cost with that stance? Our estimates are 85% of those deaths could have been avoided. In other words, essentially all those except for those that were pretty much at the end of the line anyway, which, you know, there's a little overlap of COVID just being kind of the angel of death's final tool for this year. But all the people who certainly died at least somewhat younger than their time, uh, um, statistically, should have been saved. Because your point is, while it's very hard to save people when the cytokine storm is just out of control and thrombosis and everything, but how much of that could have been preempted? And you're saying 85%. Wow. Um, I don't think anyone will tell you the masks uh, prevent 85%. Uh, that's for sure. So, uh, Dr. McCullough, thanks so much and really looking forward to having you back again. And, and folks, wasn't that the greatest guest you've ever heard? I mean, an entire year of this. Um, he certainly didn't disappoint. I mean, he gave us a tremendous amount of time. He had about 15 minutes of testimony in Texas. And I said to myself, man, that's the best summation of not doing what we should have done, doing what we shouldn't do, that I've ever heard. And how it all comes together in in just, you couldn't come up with a more ass-backwards approach than what the government, corporate media, big pharma are, are pursuing. Just indulging mass quarantine, mass masking, mass vaccination. And ignoring the early and prophylaxis treatments that would create a chain effect of health and less stress on hospitals and and less transmission because it really are it's it's those sick people that are transmitting it it's a really good point and the stuff he t talked about with with the natural immunity it it is unbelievable you could not possibly conjure up a more anti-scientific approach to this and in, indeed it looks like Johns Hopkins as uh as late as a couple months before the outbreak prophetically predicted this. And now they're the lead uh, agency bought into this, so lead lead uh, outlet. But anyway, um, listen to this show again because there's just so much information, so much useful information. Everyone's going to get it. 
mean, out of the thousands of people in this audience, there are going to be plenty of older people in this audience. Obviously, there's a lot of older conservatives around. And you need this information. The mask is not going to stop it. I could tell you that. I know plenty of people that got it despite doing all that stuff. So what do you do about that? And if your doctor is like, oh, I don't know. It, uh, wear a mask. Well, then you got to go elsewhere. So, I mean, he has some good information there. AAPS has on their website. Um, I was also very intrigued about the T-cell test. That's really interesting because that will really tell us how many people have actually had this virus. Um, man, there's there's a lot going on here. Folks, I don't know what to say. We need testimony like this in every legislature. And he said it, it actually prompted them to introduce legislation. This is what we need. So we're going to work on it. There's good news and bad news depending on the state. We've got to get our state teams up and going. Again, subscribe to this show. Send it to every one of your friends and relatives. Everyone needs to hear this. And we will be back same time, same place tomorrow with more of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. May God bless you all. Thank you for listening.